Bye bye. Many thanks to the praise team, to, to Matt and to Landon, to Lynn and to Deborah for leading us in worship this morning. It's one of my favorite courses and was a quoted portion of it in, from a message here a couple of weeks ago. So as we were looking then at that point in time on being a royal, having a royal priesthood, and for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you. Turn with me, if you would, along with our congregation to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, and we've been Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. The church, as always, for Advent season is beautiful this morning. Thanks to all that, that uh, assisted and aided with the decorations. That, uh, and we're going to talk about beauty this morning. In fact, Peter is going to talk about beauty at length in chapter 3. So this is sort of an introduction to moving into chapter 3. So I want to read again verses 11 and 12 and focusing primarily on verse 12 this morning. Peter writes, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lust which war against the soul having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, and when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. May the Lord bless His holy word in our hearing. Let's go to His throne of grace, preparation to receive the word. Father, prepare our hearts indeed to receive the word. May we not only be hearers, but as James said, likewise to be doers, and that's especially what this verse is speaking to us about today. We ask that you would move in our hearts so that you would reveal to us Jesus Christ on the cross. Calvary is always the center piece of our faith. And so remind us again of the great sacrifice by our great high priest paid in order that we might be redeemed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So honor the cornerstone, honor his gospel. And then last Sunday, we, since it was Thanksgiving, and of course Thanksgiving just a few days ago, we also focused on our bounty. The bounty that God has given us belongs to the cornerstone. If you would, first slide, Brother Jeff. <clears throat> So last week, we spent some time looking at a believing or living a believing life. And a number of quotes, I've got a number of quotes this morning as well. Now we're going to move into verse 12 on living a, a beautiful life. And we'll talk about beauty uh, toward the end of the message more so than at the beginning. But the thing is that when we live a believing life, we must learn how to. It's not, it's not in, 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 in us naturally. It's something supernaturally imposed on us through the Word of God. But we must learn to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against our souls. So then in verse 12, Peter says, in order to live a beautiful life, then we have to conduct our lives honorably with our good works, moving even lost sinners to glorify God. 
And yes, this does happen. It doesn't happen often, but it does happen. And that's because God has placed within us His consciousness in order that we understand what is both good and what is evil. So last Sunday morning, we examined living a believing life, and we, we spent time uh, on some of the, the, our culture's uh, structural dysfunction according to the Word of God. A number of quotes from Alistair Begg and from others. Uh, now, the thing I want to remind you as we move into verse 12 is that often when we hear a message like, the, like last Sunday, we have a tendency to point fingers at sinners and say, well, my life is not as bad as those, their lives are. And that's unfortunate because we are not innocent. Even born-again believers are not innocent of such sins. And sometimes we will amen the sins of others because, well, I'm not guilty of that. Well, the, the, the Scripture says... If we break the law, one law, we're guilty of all of them. So that means all of us are guilty of the entire law. Now, we may not be involved in the seriousness of sin to that level, but still, the Scripture is truth, and it, that's what it tells us. Sometimes we dismiss the sin that is in our own life because we don't think it's quite as bad as the sin that is in other people's lives, but that's not what the Bible teaches us. Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, used, in fact, the word hypocrite was first coined uh, by the Greeks, uh, used by the Gospelers, and then the first time it was used in the English language was when the Bible was translated from the uh, original Greek. And so there he uses the word hypocrite. Hypocrite, first get rid of the log that is in your own eye, and then you will see well enough to deal with the speck that is in your friend's eye. So part of what we're learning uh, here in avoiding fleshly lust and living a beautiful life is that we need to keep in mind that our lives are every bit as sinful as a sinner's life. We are just born again. And we should have the wisdom to know the difference. Otherwise, we become self-righteous. Because of the cornerstone, we can live believing and beautiful lives. Verse 11 defines the internal battle. He uses the word which war against the soul. There's an internal battle that is going on within us. And we looked at Romans 7. We looked at some other passages last Sunday morning as well. There is always an internal battle that Christians endure because of our sin. One of the things the Spirit of God does, and it's a good thing, is to make us aware of our sin nature. And sinners can't be saved until they are aware of the nature of their sin. The second thing, verse 12, describes to us the external battle. Okay, we, we struggle with our own sin, but there's also a struggle externally. To live before a world that is no friend to the grace of God. Now, Peter talks about works. We're going to look at some other quotes this morning talking about works. But uh, the scripture is very clear, the entire Reformation uh, rediscover the understanding that it's not faith and works or works and faith. 
It's rather faith that precedes works. And so the good works that he's referring to here should be integral to our lifestyle. Next slide, if you would, brother. So to counter unbelievers, you and I, people that know the Lord, the born-again folk, we need to lead, live believing lives. We can't just wander through the life saying, well, I'm saved and that's all I need to know. That's not what the Bible, that's <laughs> with a, almost a million words in the English translation of the Bible. So the Lord just gave us three or four of them for us to remember and the rest of them we can forget or don't have to don't, don't have to enable or understand what he's teaching us? Again, that's not what the Bible is about. There is a theology that goes with all of this. And we'll see it unfold in these next few verses. So our lives should be blameless. We should have the inner purity, that's what verse 11 speaks of, and also a visible fruitfulness, and that's what verse 12 speaks about. So there are two things about living a beautiful life. Look back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 16. And there, uh, Peter writes, let's look at verse 13. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, he's going to talk about the day of visitation, the latter part of verse 12. They're very similar here. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as your ignorance. That sounds very much like verse 11, doesn't it? So he's repeating himself. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, be holy for I am holy. And we went back to Leviticus 11 and we saw that the Lord had uh, made that statement to the Hebrew people a number of times. So a good holy life is to be desired intrinsically. And then for the beauty, it, 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 we, we desire this because it gives us a confidence or an assurance in the beauty that is in Jesus Christ. We sang about his beauty. Craig prayed about his beauty. And we need to remember that Christ is beautiful, not outwardly. And that's where we get twisted around the stump. Because the Western culture bases most aspects of beauty on sight. The second thing about living a beautiful life. In verse 12, Peter says, okay, what you have intrinsically, what you have inside of you should be lived out instrumentally, where we actively, not passively, where we actively influence unbelievers by the conduct of our good. And he uses the word good, look at the latter part of verse 12, by your good works, which is the word kalos, It doesn't mean pristine, it simply means beautiful and attractive works. Something in the character of your fruitfulness that attracts unbelievers. And again, we'll speak to this as we move through the message. So what's the purpose of these two verses? Always ask yourself the question, 
when you're reading through the Word of God. What is Peter trying to teach the aliens? What is, what is he trying to teach you and I here, part and parcel of the Flat Creek family? And so if you were to take verse 12 literally, you could translate it so that in the thing they slander you, whatever that may be, whatever fruitfulness you may have, in the thing that they slander you as evildoers, and that's a strong word, we'll look at that later on, they may, on account of your good deeds, on account of your beautiful and your attractive deeds, when they observe you doing those, that they may glorify God. Now, you're here this morning. I mentioned last Sunday morning. This is a good deed. You don't do just your good deeds, your beautiful works, outside of the church of the living God. In fact, the majority of your good works, of my good works, will be inside the house of the living God, with the people of God, and that's where God intended for them to be shared. So, Peter is encouraging the sojourners and the pilgrims, verse 11 and 12, to live such a Christian life that we can anticipate an occasional, not every day, but an occasional positive response from urbane, secular people. Urbane simply means worldly. In the very lifestyle that you and I live, there are going to be people that slander us. But by God's grace and the work of the Holy Spirit, we're to prove them wrong. And we're to lead them to the gospel. Yeah, we're pilgrims, we're aliens, we're sojourners, but we're not to absorb our faith on ourselves. We are to instrumentally live that out in the world, in the pagan world that we live in. Next slide, if you would. Now, in this verse, Peter, in verse 12, Peter uses the word evildoers. And notice how it's used. <clears throat> Having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, when they slander you, and the word evildoers is not speaking of the sinners, the unsaved sinners. It's speaking of the word that unsaved sinners use to disparage saved sinners. So they're calling you and I evildoers. That's a strong word. It is the word in the old King James that is malefactor, malefactor. And it's found, we would go there this morning, in Luke chapter 23, which is Luke's record of the crucifixion of Christ. And there it said, and uh, they brought Jesus to Golgotha, and there he was crucified, and two malefactors with him, two evildoers, Two individuals that were worthy of severe punishment. Jesus was not. So this word is only found two or three times in the New Testament, found in the Gospel of Luke. And I think Peter uses it again in 2 Peter. So Peter was very familiar with what was taking place when Christ was crucified. He was familiar with the two thieves that were placed on either side of him one of which did not repent and the other that did and came to a 
saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says they're going to be those that think that you deserve severe punishment for your faith. So how do we live? And he says, listen, pagans are going to use this word to slander those that live, live believing lives. And they're also going to use this word to slander those that live beautiful lives. It's a term of abuse. It's a term of contempt. Over the past few two or three weeks, we've quoted a number of Roman historians and others that, that uh, slandered these sojourners and the pilgrims that Peter is writing to. And just to kind of bring you up to date on some of this, I'm not going to go back and quote these, but Christians in the first century were accused of insurrection, rebelling against the Roman government. Now, you will notice that in verse 13 of chapter 2, Peter now moves from living a beautiful life to the outplaying of your beautiful life. And he's talking here, uh, therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to, to the king as supreme or to governors or to those who are sent by uh, him for the punishment of evildoers. That is the word again. So Peter counters this charge. The Christians were not responsible for insurrections. They were accused of atheism. Talked about this at length because they wouldn't worship the pantheon of Roman gods, nor would they worship the emperors who claimed to be gods. They were accused of cannibalism. In fact, the latter part of the first century, and it's pretty close here, Peter's writing around 67 or so A.D., but the latter part of the first century into the second century, Christians were accused of killing their own children and eating them. It was commonly assumed that they did this. They were accused of immorality. Oedipian. This comes from Oedipus, which is... There's a play in Greek about this. And the Oedipus complex is basically um, mother and son and brother and sister being involved in incestual relationships. So they were accused of this because they called one another brothers and they called others sisters. They were accused of damaging trade and social progress. They were accused of wrecking homes because they didn't pay attention to the, to the household gods that the Romans had. And they were even accused of, leaving, of leading slave rebellions. In fact, there's a book that Paul wrote to Philemon about Onesimus, a slave that was converted. And uh, Philemon was uh, essentially afraid to bring him back into the fold, uh, they became, when they became believers in Christ, they received, as every new believer does, a, a new identity, a dignity of life, an understanding of the beauty of life that was equal with their owners. There was a lot of stratas in the Roman um, culture. And so 
Slaves, even though they were freed in some cases, were still slaves. So all of these things and many, many others they were accused of. This is the heritage, by the way, of our faith. So Peter understands this and he is writing to, to counter and to challenge believers to live beautiful lives. Next slide. So we live, we're to live the beautiful life because of the chief cornerstone. There are three things that he reminds us of here in verse 12. The first thing is you've got to continue to live among the pagans. Don't become monastic. Move off to the crown or the, or the, uh, um, the uh, high mountain and there live to yourself. Live among the pagans. Secondly, these same pagans will accuse you of being evildoers. It's going to happen. It happens today. It's not going to change. We're not going to Christianize the culture and change it. It's going to happen. And thirdly, we must live such beautiful Christian lives that the pagans can make no valid accusations against us. Yes, they may slander us, but there cannot be any proof to the slander. So, Live among the pagans. We are strangers. We are aliens. We looked at that. We went back to the book of Genesis, and we saw where Abraham himself, who was from the Ur of the Chaldees in a strange land, never, Abraham never felt at home in Canaan. Yet he was obedient. He was faithful. He went because God told him to go. We're strangers and aliens in this world, but we don't flee from the world. We are the salt of the earth, we are the light of the world. And so live your beautiful life in front of those that are unbelievers. Secondly, these same pagans will accuse you as being wicked individuals that deserve severe punishment. We'll be condemned in the first century. Christian believers were referred to as haters of humanity. Does that sound familiar? And Peter said, avoid the syncretism, avoid the pluralism that permeates the world. And this was very much active during the Roman Empire, and it's very much active today in the last 200 years in the world's empire, in the Western world, in America. And you say, when you do this, if you live this way, then false charges are going to be inevitable. Now, we opened last Sunday's message reminding you that no one wants to be out of place. But when we accepted the Lord Jesus Christ, when we came to faith in Jesus Christ, that immediately put us out of place. Christ was out of place for the 33 years he journeyed on this earth. It immediately put us out of place. It immediately put us at odds to all of the world systems. Immediately. Now, are we to live in it? Are we to, uh, to be the, the salt and the light that is with it? Yes. But we are not to be thought that we're going to be found favorable because we follow 
the God-man Jesus Christ. And thirdly, we must live such beautiful Christian lives that the pagans can make no valid accusations. In other words, they can't raise any proof against you. Beautiful Christian lives are antidotes for the incessant pessimism that acts like a miasma. Miasma is just another word for vaporous and dangerous smoke over this world. Almost everywhere you go, people are pessimistic. The most blessed people on earth ever and we're pessimists. If we live a beautiful life, if we live a life according to what the Bible teaches, especially in the New Testament, it will be an antidote. You know what an antidote is? When you're poisoned, they give you an antidote, something that removes or counters the poison. We live in a poisonous world where everyone is out for themselves. And when we live a beautiful Christian life as described by Peter and Paul and Christ and others, then it is an antidote for the vaporous and dangerous shroud over the world. Are you living a beautiful life? Or are you one that is riding uh, Isaiah's horse? Woe is me. Live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ. Next slide. We looked at chapter 1 and verse 16 where it talks about being holy. And we examined that when we were in that passage a few weeks ago. You and I are called to a high holiness. Now, to be sure, we'll never attain the holiness of Jesus Christ, not in this life. Thankfully, in the life that is to come, that will be imputed to us. This fellowship that we have with God, when we claim to be born again, it must produce an observable conduct that is consistent and honest. We just, we just don't talk about being a child of God. We live the life. He, he uses the word, um, or the old King James rather uses the word conversation. Paul uses that quite a bit, which is a, a walking lifestyle, an awake walking lifestyle. And he says you to do this because that they may see or that they may observe your beautiful works. Literally, Peter says that you may have a beautiful lifestyle. Now turn with me back to James 3. James mentions something very similar to this. Go back just a few pages, James chapter 3. Now it's interesting here that Peter is 
one of the apostles, and James is the half-brother of our Lord. He did not become apostle until after the uh, resurrection of his older brother, Jesus Christ. And James is writing as the pastor of the first church in Jerusalem. Verse 13, who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show by good conduct, same word, callous, beautiful conduct, that his works are done in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness of wisdom. Sometimes we, we uh, promote ourselves. Well, look how wise I am. James says, no, it's the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envy and self-seeking in your hearts, do not boast and lie against the truth. This wisdom does not descend from above. There is an earthly wisdom, James is saying, and we know that. But he says, this wisdom does not descend from above, but is earthly, sensual, demonic. For where envy and self-seeking exist, confusion and every evil thing are there. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then it's peaceable, then it's gentle, it's willing to yield. That's a remarkable trait of wisdom, willing to yield. It's full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. So James mentions eight positive attributes about having a beautiful life. And he says, now the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So Peter's not the only one that talks about a beautiful life. James talks about it. Now to be sure, many will not recognize our beautiful work, sometimes not even in the church. But that doesn't matter, because God does, and God accounts them, not because of who we are, but because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And to be sure, since biblical teaching about sin then and today has been flushed down the cultural toilet. Yes, not everyone is going to see our beautiful works. We don't do them to be seen. We do them because they're part of the new nature that has been given to Jesus Christ. Now, I've got a long quote here by Dr. Al Molin, president of Southern Seminary, so bear with me. Now, this speaks to the loss of an understanding of sin in our culture. And he says this, the only morality recognized by many is what, as known, what is known as a morality of harm. If you can't show that this particular action harms someone, and if we can't see that harm, then it should be morally legitimate or at least morally allowable. In other words, if we can't see the harm of this action, then you should not try to censor it or try to prohibit it, must let sanction it, and if you can't prove that there's an immediate, visible, detectable harm, it can't be wrong. 
Next slide. He goes on, from a Christian biblical perspective, and that's what you and I are. We're Christians that have and should have a biblical worldview. From a Christian biblical perspective, there's a huge issue here. The scriptural logic concerning sin begins with the fact that sin is the transgression of the law. Whose law? God's law. And violence against the character of God. Why do we say violence? Because when you look at the world, populated by 8 billion sinners, some of them, say by faith, most of them not, we see the continuance of violence even in the face of education, in the face of wealth, in the face of prosperity, in the face of health. That is prior to any understanding of a harm that will come to the center. Now, the Bible is very clear and honest about these harms. But he says the Bible never says that this particular sin is a sin because here is the human harm that is caused. God said not to commit adultery, but he doesn't go into detail as to why and what harm may occur. We know what occurs. Not to bear false witness, not to lie. But we know he doesn't go into detail as to what harm takes place. But we know it does. How do we know? Because it takes place in my life. And to deny presence of sin is denial of self. So, and he cites some example. What's the specific harm of lust? What is the specific harm of greed? What's the specific harm of envy? And how exactly does that work? It should be okay for me to envy. It should be okay for me to lust. It should be okay for me to be greedy. What harm does it cause? We know that it comes also with a harm to others, whereby actions and logic, there's a harm that is brought about. It's also a harm to the larger society and the unraveling of the moral fabric that is necessary for that society to exist and to be healthy. Next slide. You and I live in a society, and I continue the quote, that has for decades tried to have a discussion about so-called victimless crimes. What about prostitution? What about pornography? But of course, we know that none of these crimes, none of these sins are actually, actually victimless. But we live in a society that says, I want you to show me the direct effect of this particular act which leads to a harm that we can document and that we can measure. Otherwise, this can't be a matter of our public concern, of our moral concern, or our legal concern. Many states have approved 
the selling and the use of marijuana now as a uh, recreational drug. And I read just this week in the Wall Street Journal that marijuana is 10 times more harmful than tobacco. What harm does it cause? We seem in this country to approve something long before we have the, the facts, long before we follow the science. The harm by a biblical worldview is to the individual. Harms to the soul, harms to the mind, to the emotions, to the heart, to our self-consciousness, to our relationships. It's actually an injury that is far larger than anything can be detected. And that is part of God's ordering of creation. We could go on and on. Gambling. You can't watch a sport net, sports network or sports game or whatever now without being inundated with gambling. Doesn't harm anybody, you think? Why do they always have those disclaimers? If you have a gambling problem, call this number. 1-800-I-LOST-ALL-MY-MONEY. Can't feed my kids. Can't buy my drugs. Can't smoke my weed. Now, we laugh at that, but there's a truth, is it not? It is the gospel truth. Yes. Most will not recognize this, but some will. They will recognize our beautiful works, and they will, as Peter says, glorify God in his day. Visitation. Let's bring this to a close. Next slide. John Piper said, doing good deeds, in summary of this, in a message that he preached, doing good deeds, he said, before an onlooking world is a necessary part of declaring God's marvelous works and making him a name on earth. That's what we get to share in. We're sharing it this morning. When we leave here, we will share it with those. When we have Thanksgiving or Christmas with friends and family, many of whom are unbelievers, we share in that. Paul wrote to Titus, he said this, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all iniquity and to purify for himself a people of his own who are zealous for good work. James, again, James chapter 1. The only time the word religion is found in the Bible, the New Testament. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself from the world. That's a beautiful life. 
Are you living a beautiful life? Living a beautiful life is not about physical beauty. With our senses, we know and appreciate beauty because we are made in God's image. My dog doesn't have a clue what's beautiful except maybe a, a bone. He has no clue. But I do. You do. I'm looking at quite a number of beautiful people this morning. But that beauty should be deeper than our skin. God made everything beautiful and our sin soiled most of it. Still a beautiful world. We see beauty everywhere. But our sin can soil the beauty that he's made. Especially with self. Scripture teaches us the model of beauty. As always. This is the way God looks at beauty. It's an awareness of spiritual poverty. It's a sorrow for wickedness. It's hunger, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. It's desiring mercy. It's wanting a pure heart and being a peacemaker. And we find these, Sermon on the Mount, these are beautiful to God. Living our faith with physical hardships. Controlling the tongue. Enduring personal harm to protect the church. Making sacrifices for the good of others and living by Christian convictions in the face of ridicule. All these are beautiful to God. Now they may not be beautiful on the surface, but they're beautiful to God. These are the intrinsic characteristics that are to be lived out instrumentally in our world. A number of years ago, R.C. Sproul wrote in one of his books, he wrote this, <clears throat> speaking of beauty, he said, there are many religious institutions in America, one being the Salvation Army. We see a lot of that this time of year, do we not? Salvation Army volunteers with their kettles and bells at Christmas time, and they are the subject, the object rather, of ridicule until a nat natural disaster occurs, and these volunteers are usually some of the first on the scene, along with Southern Baptists and others. Okay? Sproul sent spent some of his time at the University of Amsterdam doing his, some of his uh, theological work. And so he says, during the first week I was in Amsterdam, my American colleagues wanted to drive me around downtown Amsterdam, the prostitution capital of Europe. And I've been there, and it is. That's all I can say about that. I've been there, and it is. Prostitutes stand before pictures picture windows rather, scantily attired and try to attract the tourists. The practice, is, the practice is wide open and is protected by the government in the Netherlands and Germany and other places in Europe. He said, the first time I witnessed it, I thought, does anyone minister to these ladies? 
He said, I saw a prostitute standing in front of a church door and considered that the minister would have to walk past them to go inside to his office. As I stood there pondering that, I saw a young woman cross a canal to speak to one of the girls. She, I later found out, was with the Army of Salvation, the Salvation Army in the Netherlands. The only people who ministered good works were the women of the Salvation Army. And those prostitutes always spoke with respect for that organization. The glowing appreciation of the Salvation Army women is a backhanded expression of the glory of God who will be glorified in the day of visitation. That's how Peter uh, finishes chapter, uh, verse 12 rather. This is a phrase that he used that he copies from the Septuagint. Most of his quotes are from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And it literally means God intervenes with grace for his people or in wrath to the unrepentant. The word visit in the day of visitation is also from the root word bishop, which can mean visitor. The Greek military used this where the general would drop in unannounced and review the troops. If the general was pleased with the troops, they received praise. And if they were ill-prepared, they received his judgment. The metaphor is used by Peter to describe the day when our heavenly bishop comes, visiting When he arrives, what will he find? In him, we hope to live believing and beautiful lives. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word. We thank you for Peter's pastoral insight into our lives. Forgive us where we neglect so many folks that we can are, seem to be those that we call the down and outers of, of life. And we do this often, Father, because we, we don't want to be soiled. We don't want, they may have disease. We do all these things, Lord, but that's not what you've called us to do. In fact, you taught a parable, the Good Samaritan, about how we are to engage our lives. Forgive us where, where we have neglected to engage in such a manner. And then, Lord, we pray that what is within us intrinsically will be lived out instrumentally so that maybe just a few, but these few that don't know you as Savior may be attracted to the beauty of the gospel in our lives. And through that, you may, be, you may use by the Spirit of God the Word to bring them to faith. We do not know and will only know in eternity how folks are brought to you by the beautiful works that we live. Have your sweet will, your divine way, in the remainder of the service. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.
We're going to sing a closing hymn this morning. And the opportunity, the responsibility, and the opportunity is yours. And if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, if you're unsure that Jesus is your Savior, then certainly you should make that right today. And we certainly can't save you. But the good news is Jesus can. Not only can he save you, but he will save you. He promised to do, and he will. We're going to sing a verse here in just a moment, and if you're unsure that you know the Lord is Savior, we encourage you to make your way out of the pew up to the front. We'll engage you, take you to a private prayer room, and lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. But that's your responsibility. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord is Savior. You may need to follow him in believer's baptism or become a member by transfer of letter or statement of faith. We encourage you to do that this morning as well. If you're here today as a child of God, are you living a beautiful life? Would the Lord look at your life? Will he look at my life and say, you know, that's, that's a life I, I died for his sins, for Ernie's sins. He's been converted. He's living a beautiful life before me so that we may use this life to attract those folks that don't live such a beautiful life. What number, Brother Mike?